0: i like it There it is cool Well, welcome to super duper stitches No,
1: (laughs) god damn it
0: the podcast whose theme song
1: repeats endlessly throughout the entire recording exactly this is why you guys tune in over and over again (laughs) let me hear that one more time that was almost a minute long i want to (laughs) get that up on the screen i don't ever want to
0: hear the content i actually listen to the show for no exactly uh i'm jake i'm wyatt And we're here for another week to talk to you about some more spooky stuff. This is the podcast that uses science to try and describe the paranormal supernatural. What are you doing, you son of a
1: bitch? My headphones are all fucking weird. One sec. All right. So, hello, everyone. (laughs) I'm finally ready to go. (laughs) Excellent. So, uh, yeah, this week we're going to talk about some uh, stuff. Some strangeness out of New England world, and we're doing that because we were emailed by friend of the show Amanda. Should I say the last name? I don't, Probably re- not. I don't know. Yeah, we'll stick with just Amanda if she wants. Either way, she reached out and she. uh And we appreciate that because very, uh, very
0: much. No one else seems to be stepping up. So, uh, guys, we're here. So the overall theme then um, is going to be. Spooky stuff, um, kind of legendary folklore monsters, pretty famous, pretty worldwide, well known, uh, with a specific New England twist
1: to them. Exactly, I this guess. is the Yankee candle of that. Yes, broader topic. <laughs> so yeah, you want to go ahead and kick it off? Indeed. So yeah, her topic was the New England vampire panic. So, thank you again, Amanda. Um, something that neither of us had heard of before. Indeed, though it is apparently a pretty well-covered topic, I now come to realize after having done my homework for today's hmm. episode. But hopefully Guess some we of dumb. you guys out there, yeah, won't be, will be as dumb as us and will not have heard about it. Um, but before we get to that, Jake, I think I just heard something on the roof. On the roof? Do you want to help me out here? I think it's Spring-Heel Jack. Jack. <laughs> A.K.A. Jumper ham leap. Oh God! I keep forgetting to try and think of any other variations to help you with. Yes, indeed. As we are about to be wandering all over New England in today's episode, I figured no better time to continue the saga of Spring Hill Jack America edition. Jake, do you recall where we all got scratched last? Were we still in New York? Yes. Also, you shouldn't have pointed to your body right when I asked This is the
0: part of me that I consider New York. I
1: don't... (laughs) (laughs) I call this part New York. So, right. We were in New York State in the late 1800s. Today we will head to... The late 1800s, if you will. The late 1800s. Who, buddy, I like it. Uh, Today we will head to Provincetown, Massachusetts. Um, This is way out there on the old hook of Cape Cod. Okay. um, Right on the very tippity tip. And folks have been seeing the black flash there... Hmm. since 1938 so we've gone forward in time a good 40 years or so from our last events we know what we know of the black flash thanks in large part to the efforts of robert ellis cahill and joe citro whose combined efforts brought these stories back to life (laughs) vampire stuff am i right (laughs) so that these stories could drink the blood of the living more vampire stuff (laughs) Just kidding. There's no vampire are you, stuff. Are you foreshadowing something? Why? Ooh, shadows. So I adapted <laughs> the following from blogs.fortiana.org, hmm. uh, which in turn draws on Kale's work and from Citro's book, Passing Strange True Tales of New England Hauntings and Horrors. The Black Flash was a, quote, giant monster, a phantom like creature dressed in black, black hood, black cape black face it was but, 400 feet tall but his fierce eyes and long pointed ears were a glowing silver mm. a woman had a frightful evening encounter in provincetown in the second week of november 1938 afterwards she described the black flash as black all black with <laughs> I'm eyes just gonna leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> with eyes like balls of flame and he was big real big maybe eight feet tall he made a sound a loud buzzing sound like a June bug on a hot day, only louder. He disappeared in a flash. Sounds now, there
0: is nothing louder than a June bug on a hot day. So it was
1: quite a frightful <laughs> encounter. It's like a June bug on a hot day, nuclear bomb explosion, airplane taking off, lawnmower. In exactly that order. And then supernova after the lawnmower. <laughs> um, let me see. Other encounters would follow, writes Kale. Within the next three weeks, four other people had similar experiences in downtown Provincetown. The Black Flash either jumped out at them from behind a tree or dropped down before them from a rooftop. Two of his victims were husky men, and although one man reported that he chased him, he said he was no match for the speed and agility of the Black Flash. Wow. Everyone to experience the Flash agreed on its height, black cape, superhuman agility, and sometimes the silver ears. During another encounter, the Provincetown police managed to corner the being in a schoolyard surrounded by a ten-foot fence. When they shined a flashlight on its face, they saw, moments before it leapt away, a mask which looked like an old flower screen without its handle, painted silver and strapped to the phantom's head. And during another encounter, one teenager alleged that the phantom had spit blue flames into his face. Uh Um, Probably so... more like our old pal Jack. Indeed. I actually find all these, um, consistent details very intriguing, actually. Well, except for the mask thing is a little strange, but... Yeah, and actually, if I can just kill the momentum for one second, flower screen. We do enjoy a good momentum killer here on the show. It's true. Oh. Oh, flower. I thought you were... Th- oh, like, flower-like food. You thought <laughs> it was, like, flower-like pretty plant?
0: Yeah. Flower screen, like, for sifting
1: flower. Gotcha. And actually, without the handle... It kind of makes me think of a fencer's screen that they would wear on their face to prevent the stabbing. So, uh, best of all possible offerings for this update, and the one that I'm going to conclude it with, um, has to be the front page article from the Provincetown Advocate, Mm -hmm. which is a local paper, if you couldn't tell, dated October 26, 1939, about a year after these first sightings. So I will read that now fall brings out the black flash hard winter uh, certain as cabin fever stories start mm-hmm. joe Berger, jeremiah diggies to you says it's bowleg bill the seagoing cowboy back from a date with the sea witch of gauster howard slade ain't up oh my god howard slade ain't made up his mind but he knows it ain't benny regular ma hunt said if a man grabbed her she would hold on chief tony tarvers said it's all a lot gurry or something like it and he's getting gall darn tired or something like it looking for the black flash and if he don't get some sleep nights he'll be thinking he's the black flash the winter may be long the winter may be cold and we may all be eating charlie muller's seagulls before the summer visitors begin to bud But the way it's starting it, oh my god, but the way it's starting, it should be one of the best winters in recent Provincetown history. Quick question. Yep. What the fuck? Yeah, Provincetown adopted its own form of English. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It ain't usually until cabin fever time that the balmy stories start. After folks have been penned up here for too long a time in too little space with just the same faces to look at every morning, afternoon, and evening, then the crazy yarns begin circulating but winter seems to be shutting in early this year here it is only october and the black flash has been prowling scaring kids so that they won't go out nights and won't go to bed grabbing women jumping over 10 foot hedges with no trouble at all not clear whether he's talking about the kids or the black flash In that sentence structure (laughs) chair springs on his feet is the explanation newspapers over the country have taken up the story and the radio carries word of the daily exploits of provincetown's black flash yet only one person after intensive investigation swears he saw the black flash and that was captain phineas blackstrap totally a real name who <laughs> met him out on Helltown road late monday night <laughs> i'm damned Sartin i saw him stated the captain under oath <laughs> but that ain't nothing We've had the Black Flash here every fourth year ever since I was man and boy, and he ever... Oh my god, what the fuck? Ever since I was man and boy, and he never harmed no one? Ever since I was a man and boy, he never harmed no one? Ever since I was a man and boy, he never harmed no one. Thank you, Jake. You understand me? (laughs) Uh, Maybe I should have told this story to you first. (laughs) Some used to say he was looking for his vessel that was lost. Oh, see the race? And others used to say that he has a date to eat Scully Joes with the devil out at Peaked Hill, when the first one is ripe. i never seen him without he's gnawing away at a Scully Joe. What is a Scully Joe? Sure, he can move fast, added Captain Blackstrap, but he never does no one no harm. He's a native. He won't even pass the time of day with you. The Well... (laughs) all my questions are now answered thank you to that captain yep he done crunched in
0: so it's interesting the stories what i was able to decipher from some of that newspaper <laughs> just nonsense was that the stuff that this flash is doing sounds very very much like our old boy spring heel jack it's, and going so far as to say that he has uh bed springs on his feet is the explanation exactly he jumps
1: around no it, it is directly like comparable to what was happening what, at this point, Almost. 60, 70, 80 years prior? Yeah, in London. So, what the heck happened there? Maybe people just brought those stories over and perpetuated them. Could um, be. Out in Provincetown, perhaps uh, just the stories themselves m- made their way over, but why would it be so localized if it was that yeah. kind of pop you know, phenomenon? And then, yeah, I don't know. It's very strange, actually. So, who knows? Who knows, indeed. So... Allow me to dive into my topic for today. The one that you did or didn't foreshadow before? Indeed. So, Mm. on May 30th, 1854, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported a strange event initially reported by the Norwich Courier, a local paper out of Norwich, Connecticut. Connecticut? Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry to say. Quote, "...the Norwich Courier relates a strange and almost incredible tale of superstition recently enacted in Jewett City in that vicinity." About six years ago, Horace Ray of Griswold died of consumption. Since that time, two of his children, grown-up people, have died of the same disease, that last one dying some years since. Not long ago, the same fatal disease seized upon another son, whereupon it was determined to exhume the bodies of the two brothers already dead, and burn them, because the dead were supposed to feed upon the living. Oh. And so long as the dead body remained in a state of decomposition, either wholly or in part, Surviving members of the family must continue to furnish the sustenance on which that dead body fed. Acting under the influence of this strange and blind superstition, the family and friends of the deceased proceeded to the burial ground at Jewett City, on the 8th dug up the dead bodies of the deceased brothers, and burned them on the spot. It seems impossible to believe that such dark ignorance and folly could exist in the middle of the 19th century, and in an a state calling itself enlightened and Christian. Those are the two things that Connecticut's most well-known for. So. Yeah, exactly. That's why they're so rich. Thirty years later, in Exeter, Rhode Island, George and Mary Brown, parents of two daughters and a son, exchanged a knowing and fearful look. Mary was gravely ill, and with no ideas as to how to treat the infection, it seemed time and attention might be the only remedy. Mary would pass away, followed soon after in 1883 by the eldest daughter, Mary Olive. Eight years would go by before the second daughter, Mercy, would also succumb to the same illness. Hmm. Shortly after Mercy's passing, young Edwin also came down with the same malady. Friends and neighbors of the family were terrified. Contemporary folklore, which was about as good as much of the medicine of the age, decreed that multiple deaths in a family were likely due to the activity of the undead variety. Oh, that makes sense. Mercy's demise and Edwin's illness were clearly linked by the cursed, vampiric nature of one of the other dead family members. Mm. George was soon persuaded to give permission to exhume the bodies of his family members. Villagers, the local doctor, and a newspaper reporter attended the exhumation on March 17, 1892. The bodies of both Mary and Mary Olive exhibited the expected level of decomposition, so they were thought not to be the cause. However, the corpse of poor Mercy, which incidentally sounds like a hardcore band name, am I right? <laughs> which had been in a freezer-like above-ground vault where they also kept their ice cream, exhibited almost no decomposition. <laughs> More damning still, blood was still in the body's heart and liver, an irrefutable sign that the woman was undead and the causative agent of Edwin's illness. Mm. As super-duper, uh, Every time I see super, I'm like, super duperstitious, dude. Um, <laughs> as superstition dictated, Mercy's heart was removed and burned. And the ashes, naturally, were mixed with water and given to Edwin to drink. Oh yeah, that makes sense. In order to cure his illness. Oh no. <laughs> he died two months later. Okay. So the New England vampire panic or why you can't cure a wasting disease with the potion your niece made with dirt flower petals and paint chips from the backyard no matter how earnestly she insists (laughs) you just try it and you'll feel better (laughs) (laughs) uh what i've just read were the jewett city vampire and mercy brown vampire incidents It turns out, not so far into the past, towards the end of the 19th and turn of the 20th centuries, tuberculosis was pretty close to taking over New England itself. Damn. Tuberculosis was essentially the state bird and tree of Massachusetts at that time, (laughs) and they've only been calling it TD Garden rather than TB Garden for a relatively short time. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I can think of saying. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Um, Yeah, people were falling ill left and right, and as tends to happen with widespread death and disease folks started to flip their shit. So rather than seeing the ever-expanding infections as the spread of a horribly contagious and often fatal illness, families of the deceased believed that those who passed away were cursed to come back as vampires, consuming the lifeblood of their friends and family members, and in doing so, further spreading the illness. Hmm. Now, I know what everyone's thinking, and no, these are not the sexy, cool, fast car having vampires. (laughs) Those are your Draculas and your Count the Chocolates. (laughs) <laughs> and according to Paul Barber, author of Vampires, Burial, and Death, in that order... Well, I mean, one definitely guarantees the other, so... Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. They qualify as fictional vampires. So, sorry. Those vampires are fictional, everybody. In <laughs>
0: case you're wondering, yeah. the real
1: vampires are a little bit different, That's guys. right. <laughs> they call them lawyers. <laughs> oh, I'm out of here. Uh, no, why don't
0: you? Oh! <laughs>
1: Um, What the fine New Englanders of yesterday were describing was something more akin to the Slavic concept of an upir, which is an unclean spirit that possesses the decomposing corpse of a person. So upir would return to drink the blood of relatives and fellow villagers, which eventually caused illness or death for those who had been feasted upon in much the same way as was happening in New England. Barber suggests these folkloric tales likely evolved out of a misunderstanding of disease transmission. No surprise. Yeah. But as we look at what tuberculosis actually does, one could make a kind of case of TB being its own form of an undead curse. Hmm. And uh, as I get into it, I'd honestly almost rather be a uh, Ghoulie or an Oopier. <laughs> so I'll talk about that now. That's fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about a horrible
1: disease. So uh, yeah, take a nice deep breath. Uh, Tuberculosis spread like wildfire because mycobacterium tuberculosis, the culprit behind this famous illness, is incredibly infectious, requiring exposure to, get this, less than 10 individual bacteria. What? You can be exposed to just 10 cells. Wow. And get tuberculosis. Jesus. A single aerosolized droplet of spittle or phlegm, which measures... Point five to five micrometers across, aka five ten thousandths of a centimeter, mm-hmm. contains more than enough M mm, tuberculosis, aka tuberculosis, <laughs> <laughs> to be infectious. So one only one person has a copper sneeze, and then you're basically screwed. To put it into sharp perspective, when you sneeze, you can release upwards of forty thousand aerosolized droplets, Jeez. any one of which. Could be enough to uh, transmit. So you could infect forty thousand people. <laughs> you would have to time and aim the sneeze perfectly <laughs> to somehow have like forty thousand faces all in like a perfect orb all around <laughs> you staring in. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I've constructed this elaborate scheme. <laughs> um, So it's kind of no surprise that this would seem like a family curse. Thanks to modern medicine, however, we tend to experience tuberculosis as kind of like a fatal coughing disease for poor people in movies mm-hmm. set in the Victorian era. Yeah. I think we've all witnessed the scene in which an impoverished Breton coughs into a handkerchief to reveal a little blood and then the actor squeezes out their best like, oh, I'm fucked face. Yeah. Like- <laughs> But TB can and does attack much more than just the lungs. In fact, it can attack all parts of the body. So TB is what they call a granulomatous inflammatory disease. And you'll see what this means in just a moment. Uh, I'm waiting. First, we have to set the scene. Interior. Body. Uh, one of the body's first lines of defense, the macrophages, which means big eaters, step up as usual to take a big old chomp out of TB the macrophage lives to eat and its job is basically to just digest foreign cells straight to ag double hockey sticks so the macrophage gobbles up the tb cell like it's supposed to but tb has on a kind of space suit each cell has a waxy shell which prevents the macrophage from getting the job done Mm. basically it's an indigestible pill more nefariously still tb can then reproduce inside of the macrophage itself which is kind of vampiric in its own way mm. it only uh gets worse from there when the body can't immediately clear an infection by a foreign substance immune cells will start to pig pile on to form everyone together a granuloma <laughs> oh, oh guys, guys. <laughs> no one did it what the fuck <laughs>
0: i let you down oh
1: <sighs> A granuloma is a kind of immune system-induced inflammatory quarantine. With TB, though, more and more immune cells pile on to try and contain the corrupted macrophage. And recent evidence suggests that this is just what the bacteria wants. Oh, is it able to reproduce in all
0: of those cells,
1: too? It's just like annexing more and more onto its house. So ironically, as the barrier grows, the center of the quarantine space, if you will, is less and less directly exposed to the immune system itself. Mm -hmm. the expanded granuloma now granola baroma yeah exactly (laughs) like uh nature's ways just like guys i don't really think the granuloma angle is working (laughs) (laughs) see this gross pustule thing granola bars are dope right
0: (laughs) let's make it dry and impossible to eat instead
1: (laughs) you'll want a glass of water so badly (laughs) so the expanded granuloma now a tubercle you might remember that term from tuberculosis what leads to necrosis in the center appearing apparently to have the texture of soft white cheese so Mm -hmm. you're welcome cheese fans (laughs) uh much like what one might expect of an kind of undead curse the battle against tb can go on for a very long time the gruesome process of granulation and necrosis is only counterbalanced by healing and occasionally the bacteria going into dormancy which is called latent tb so you can actually get tuberculosis and never suffer from it turns out interesting you can like have full-blown tuberculosis but you're just in a latent state so you don't actually deal that's cool which is pretty cool (laughs) yeah dude i'm about to just get some (laughs) tb (laughs) fucking carry that shit to the grave son oh no um so in any event rather than drinking the ashes of your deceased siblings organs you'd probably be better (laughs) off with some hardcore antibiotics which do work although even on an antibiotic regimen it can take months to clear a tuberculosis infection and that's using like the good guns that we've got now for it and you Um, know we're talking this is this happened all when again i forgot what year so right this this kind of panic and tuberculosis as a huge problem was throughout the 1800s okay so well before penicillin came into the picture and into the 1900s even. yeah I especially appreciate the New England vampire panic for how it lays bare the sort of human tendency to lean on super duper... Uh, oh, my fucking God, I keep doing it. Yeah, we were so used to trying to say it clearly that now we can't it's say It's overwritten this the normal word. <laughs> I'm having a moment of realizing my own brain's functionality. Uh, so, lays bare the human tendency to lean on superstition and folklore in the face of the threatening and the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and further reveals how thin the line once was between what qualified as superstition and and what qualified as medicine. What I find interesting is that yeah. this is well after
0: John Snow, who famously knew nothing, uh found like did the whole Broad Street pump situation, the cholera outbreak with the Broad Street pump in London. The fuck you talking about? You don't know. Oh, this is like one of the best stories about the scientific method in action. What? He discovered there's a, a cholera outbreak in London in the
1: um, Colo- 1850s. I thought you said a Colorado break. Colorado I was like, break color a colorado outbreak i think the colorado break is a famous uh break beat that they use a lot in many different songs okay. <laughs> Cholera outbreak colorado yeah, outbreak
0: in london in the mm-hmm. 1850s and it seemed to be kind of centralized around this one water pump in huh. um, in london and uh this one particular guy john snow happened to be his name he That's uh, funny. started looking at more deeply and he started mapping out where all the outbreaks were happening and saw mm-hmm. that the epicenter was this one water pump mm. and he started to suspect that it was coming from the water oh. and so he um he kept thinking that was the case and he was trying to encourage them to take the handle out of the pump not let anyone pump out of right, that water right. thing anymore to stop the outbreaks and they're like no no it's it's in the people still thought it was in the air or it transmitting
1: like- through like like the way tuberculosis might be transmitted perhaps or just in the smog. They thought it was the idea of
0: a bad you know bad humors in the uh-huh. air. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. he's like, No, I'm pretty sure it's in the water. And so right. like, there was one particular outbreak that really confused him. It was an older couple way, way like on um, um a few like blocks, maybe on the other side of town, away from the actual Broad Street pump. And he right. didn't understand. Why they were getting sick It totally screwed up his theory Of it being Because of that particular area Right He interviewed them And found out That they used to live Near there And they liked The taste of the water From the Broad Street pump So much (laughs) That when they moved away they asked to have it delivered to them from there. That's so tragic. So, yeah. So, but that was perfect because it, it finally, like, it was the last piece of evidence he needed to show that, yes, it is the water from this pump that is getting everyone Damn. sick. Ain't that some shit, dude? And, uh, well, literally. Yeah, that was, what what was in the water. <laughs> and so, finally, that he presented that case and the um, that area of like, that particular parish or whatever agreed they take the handle off that pump and the cholera outbreak just ended everyone who if they got better they got better and never got it again no more outbreaks happened and that was that so it was it's one of the cool like textbook examples of the scientific method in action how he kind of investigated what was going on and figured out what was happening and also kind of the origin of um germ theory as well before we really knew what you know microorganisms were we saw how they could work so i'm surprised that all this tb stuff was still happening with so much superstition You know decades after straight
1: through the 1900s yeah yeah no it's true but again it's like each new malady perhaps was just like well we figured that one out but what's this now this one must be the evil spirits yeah they're finally here superstitions of the time were in some ways not so far from medicine or medical applications yeah and so as much as we might see the super my fucking god the superstitious remedy of drinking heart broth um, <laughs> as justifiably horrible and clearly not going to work um, except for that one guy out there who I know is just like oh god I gotta drink that broth <laughs> medicine was itself royally fucking around and up
0: hardcore back then <laughs> Yes,
1: Final, sh- I mean w- we're
0: probably still bleeding people by then right
1: I th- would think so yeah, yeah absolutely a, a I think we're still in humor, than- humor town <laughs> yes. for sure But the medical treatment for syphilis, if you guys don't know, which is another common and horrible bacterial (laughs) infection, um, most often transmitted through sexual contact, uh, was with isolation and mercury. And I'm going to read just a little bit about that. Go for it. I know where this is going. I'm just going to brace myself. Jake knows because he's actually experienced the cure. (laughs) (laughs) Writes SV Beck in Syphilis, The Great Pox. And he means great in, wow, I enjoyed that pox so (laughs) much. My favorite pox. My favorite pox. Which actually I do prefer personally Dr. Seuss's syphilis, the pox in the box. (laughs) (laughs) So says Beck, quote, a patient undergoing the treatment for syphilis was secluded in a hot, stuffy room and rubbed vigorously with mercury ointment several times a day. The massaging was done near a hot fire, which the sufferer was then left next to in order to sweat. This process went on for a week to a month or more and would later be repeated if the disease persisted. They're like, didn't fucking work the first hundred times. Let's try it again. Other toxic substances such as vitriol and arsenic were also (laughs) employed. There's actually another treatment still that I was thinking was even worse. Do they inject it into the penis? They absolutely do. I thought about that. They put a
0: pretty good-sized tube into the urethra, and they pour mercury in.
1: Oh, my God. Why the fuck? It
0: actually worked, is the thing. What? It did. It was, I mean, horrible. Mercury is not something you should have in your body. But it did actually cure the infection, so they did that.
1: That's unreal. Oh, my God. But... (laughs) That's the most pregnant pause ever. Get this pause to a hospital. (laughs) The contractions are too close together. (laughs) But again, even pouring mercury up the penis. Sounds like some kind of horrible, superstitious witchcraft to me. But of course, lucky for those dudes, they got cured. We now know, though, that exposure to even a little mercury can have terrible effects. The treatments that I described above, and I'm sure the kind that Jake just mentioned, that he said he meant through before we start recording, <laughs> would cause neuropathies, kidney failure, and severe mouth ulcers, and loss of teeth, and many patients died of mercurial poisoning uh, rather than from the disease itself. Also, mercurial poisoning sounds like the most fun way of getting poisoned. <laughs> Ooh, I'm over here. Ooh, I'm over there. Just kidding. <laughs> Interestingly, this uh, treatment would eventually give rise to the saying, a night with Venus and a lifetime with Mercury, which is actually um, yeah, that's pretty b- slick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess all I'm trying to say with my segment today is, for better and worse, people tend to lean on their imaginations when confronting the unknown, and that it's a good idea to be on guard when you find your modern enlightened self dealing with problems that are strange and or persistent. Are your methods motivated by what you know or by what you feel should be true? For sure, that's a great way of putting
0: that. And something that actually uh, feeds very well into stuff going on in my story. Oh, shit, son. So, for my story this week, I decided to also go into some super du... It's so hard to say. It's infectious. I was laughing at you, but superstitions, man. It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> super duperstitions um, involving conditions people are undergoing and people assuming things about them. And stuff happening in New England. Sounds back good. in the day. So, the following account was written by Nathan Craft. is entitled... Devils in the Root Cellar. Mm. I believe it was a college assignment because it is riddled with clunky historical exposition, which I have largely removed. Yeah, thank you. I further abridged the hell out of it, just for time's sake. It is unnecessary in its length. I mean, it's some fun writing. It's just you can tell it was a student writing. He was, he was going off. Yes. So I shall begin. Mm. Elizabeth knapp sat perched on a small three-legged stool in front of a roaring fire in the hall of her family's home. As the last late October
1: light faded. Wow, what a fucking sentence. I enjoyed it. It just had a lot of interesting words. Carry on. Yeah,
0: the whole thing. It's a very, it's a creative writing. Very poetic almost. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good writing in it. That's why I used this story. But there's a lot of unnecessary writing in it too, (laughs) which I have removed. Speaking of which, I remember when Julie broke my heart in high school. (laughs) Uh, The wind had already picked up a taste of the winter bite that the early Massachusetts Bay colonists had grown to despise and tonight it whipped down the chimney of the eight-foot-wide fireplace with a shrill, devilish whistle. (laughs) Elizabeth drew her red-knit hood tighter over her head and huddled towards the hearth. Her mother, also named Elizabeth, watched her from further back in the darkness of the hall, where she was uh, mending a pair of breeches. Despite the gathering winter, she felt relieved to see that her 16-year-old daughter, now her only child after the early death of her son, James Jr., was acting normal again. Mm. the father whose name also was james so basically <laughs> was, james, <laughs> james and elizabeth had two children james and elizabeth they're creative yes uh james came home soon after he entered the hall to find elizabeth in the corner conversing with one of the blood family children seemingly normal what the fuck what, blood, what, what, what? last name blood that's all okay um he crossed to the hearth where he his wife sat preparing the evening meal whispering in low tones to mrs richard blood she turned from her cauldron of hasty pudding to,
1: um, yes? So I just have to, I have to highlight this. Richard Blood. i let you do the math on that one. Yep. <laughs> she turned from her cauldron of hasty pudding to search her husband's
0: eyes. The Reverend was not in today. He went visiting his father out at Still River, James said. How has she been? She's been in a strange frame today, James. Sometimes weeping, sometimes laughing. I don't know what to think. The lines on her face seemed deepened this evening, perhaps by lack of sleep elizabeth she called turning from the stove fetch up some onion and parsnip for the stew from the cellar Uh yes mother elizabeth rose and shuffled out the front door she has me worried james said as soon as she was out of her earshot i think we should maybe call the physician from Concord out to james was interrupted by a horrible shriek coming from the cellar Mm. he quickly ran out the house and around to the back and nearly collided with his daughter coming up the cellar stairs what's the matter child james demanded i saw two men down there father James returned to the house and retrieved two tall tapers and, with Elizabeth behind him, crept down into the cellar while his wife and Mrs. Blood peered down from the top of the stairs.
1: He, he, what's a taper?
0: It's kind of like a candle, a taper.
1: Oh, okay. I thought you got tapers. I was going to say That's <laughs> he,
0: he brought tall some tape weird ungulates from oh. the Amazon down with him. Um, he moved past sacks of Indian corn and rye to check a corner while Elizabeth stood stock still at the foot of the stairs. First Nations corn and rye. Yes, there are actually a lot of sentences that just kept referring to Indians in this that I took out. I was like, nah, Come I'm just on. being silly. No, of not, course, but yeah, that's no, like you can. You yeah, really. To. Come on, guy. Seeing no trace of any men, James turned around and stopped short as he saw Elizabeth standing still as a rabbit, brown eyes transfixed on a point above the turnip sack. "What cheer, old man?" she asked. "Sack, so that's your person, eh?" James brushed past his Ugh. daughter and climbed the stairs. It's all a silly fantasy of hers, I tell you. He whispered to his wife as he passed. She's not to be believed. That night, Elizabeth again took the stool in front of the broad fireplace after supper, sitting quietly, almost sulking. Her parents had recently retired and were uh, nearing sleep, and again they heard an enormous crash and ran to find Elizabeth writhing around on the floor, her eyes rolled back in her head, Ooh. her limbs flailing and knocking stools about. As her parents rushed to hold her back, she rolled towards the fire with a seeming determination to destroy herself. Ooh. It took all of her parents' strength to hold her away from the fire as she shrieked in their ears and clawed at their faces. When at last she passed out from exhaustion, James and his wife moved to her to bed and sat whispering in low tones late into the morning. They had to let more people know. It seemed more and more that some demonic spirit, in fact, possessed their dear daughter. Ruh-row. Elizabeth's condition worsened. Her fits took on a more intense and forceful nature, and it took all the strength of James, his wife, and several others who had been spending time watching over her to keep her from leaping, kicking, and straining and bound. In addition to her physical fits, Elizabeth began to cry out, Money, money, money. Sin, misery, and other statements.
1: <laughs> Sounds like uh, Jeff.
0: Yes, Jeff the mongoose. The mongoose. <laughs> so, a callback to episode five, Four or five, yeah, six, five, seven, eight. I think. I don't talk about Jeff every episode. The year the Matrix came out. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Laken's boy was sent on a horseback that afternoon to retrieve the Reverend Willard. Willard returned at once. He was a patient observer, and his letters to the heads of the Boston churches, including the legendary Cotton Mather, are all that remain of the following three strange months. Hmm, when he got there, were they like, rats? Willard, I'm just being silly, come on. Willard no doubt took a special interest in the case because Elizabeth had recently come into his employment as a household servant, where she was responsible for stoking the fires, cleaning, and caring for his young children. His record provides a meticulous account of the case from the perspective of a man of the cloth when the reverend arrived at the nap house he found elizabeth in a more sober mood sitting quietly with her family when Willard asked her what might have caused her behavior he noted that she called out a wealthy and upright neighbor elizabeth swore that the neighbor or the devil in her likeness had come racing down the chimney wearing a riding hood two nights ago when she sat alone by the fire and bewitched her with a spirit that caused her to thrash about on the floor Willard knew the woman very well and greatly doubted the accusation that w- Elizabeth was making, and even went so far as to remove her name from all correspondence with Cotton Mather, perhaps to protect her innocence. In doing so, Willard took a step that was unprecedented in many previous witchcraft cases in the colony hmm. and chose to focus his attention on the possessed girl Elizabeth instead of on searching for and destroying the quote unquote witch. Who was causing her problems. Hmm. So, pretty yeah. cool for the 1600s. That is you know, cool. 1600s it's that he super was, progressive. He, yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> he decided, like, let's just see this person who has the problem. Right. Let's see what her deal is, <laughs> not try and hunt out a witch and kill her. Baby steps. Um, the next day, after more questioning, Elizabeth broke down in front of a larger group of people in her home. She admitted that the devil had frequently appeared before her in the past three years and offered her, quote, money, silks, fine clothes, and Ease from her labor, and other items of youthful fancy, particularly on her walks from the Willard home to her parents after work in the evening. These meetings had been infrequent at first, but had become a daily occurrence in the past four days. She could scarcely go from one room to the next without seeing him, she moaned. While at work at the Willards, the devil had constantly tempted her to murder her parents, her neighbors, and the Willards' children. She had been particularly tempted to throw the youngest child for whom she was responsible, quote... Into the fire, on the hearth, and into
1: the oven. She just sounds like a teenager to me.
0: <laughs> I mean, who hasn't gone through a phase of wanting to throw some person's kid into a fire or oven exactly. or on a hearth? Exactly. I did, and I came out fine. I mean, I'm good. <laughs> I remember that. You told me about that, yeah. yeah. She confessed that the devil had one time commanded her to murder the reverend in his sleep when she was working there late, and that she had found herself on the stairs to his bedroom with a hook in her hand, only to be jarred out of her murderous trance by the reverend, who was still awake. She swore that she had never entered into any covenant, that she had resisted the devil, and that his visits were horrible and unpleasurable. For the next few days, any time the reverend came to call on her, she would lapse into horrible fits, shaking in a random, irregular, violent manner with her eyes rolled upwards and half-crossed, sometimes calling out money and other such words. (laughs) At last, the physician from Concord arrived on the 5th of November and proclaimed her illness to be of a natural cause resulting from distemper in the stomach. He recommended fasting. Hmm. Elizabeth was in and out of bed for the next month and a half, often taken with horrible fits that would last for up to 48 hours. Hmm. She repeatedly confessed encounters with the devil, who took the forms of an old man, a dog, and a black knife, among other items, and announced her desire to turn back to God and banish these temptations once and for all. Willard vacillates, in his opinion, of Elizabeth's condition frequently. At times, he felt that she might be faking her position and that she was merely sick. While other times, the ferocity and the immense strength of her movements during the fits convinced him otherwise. On December 17th, Elizabeth's Fitz had subsided slightly. Mm-hmm. Her mother permitted her to venture out into the snowy pre-Christmas cheer of the town. And in her travels, she stopped by the Willard home in the center of town. Mm-hmm. While talking casually with Willard... She suddenly pulled back and reared up on her tiptoes, her eyes rolling upwards. Whoa. Willard reports that the devil, who had clearly taken possession of her at this point, began to draw her tongue out of her mouth in a long, sinuous S-shape that was remarkable in its length and greatness.
1: The S that kids drew in middle school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how did you draw that S? <laughs> Tell tongue. me how you drew that S! <laughs>
0: <laughs> she called out that her father and mother were both evil rogues and began to twist her body in impossible shapes. Then a low, grim voice that was barely audible emanated from within her through her lips, uh, though her lips did not move, and Mm. called to Willard, Oh, and you are the greatest rogue. (laughs) Willard and the others in the room collapsed to their knees and began to pray to God for strength and salvation from this horrible apparition. Willard noted that as she spoke, her lips did not move. Even when speaking labial sounds like B and M, things that you need to be able to use your lips to actually say.
1: The lips make the B and the M.
0: Willard called out, Satan, thou art a liar and a deceiver, and God will vindicate his own truth this one day. The devil replied, I am not Satan. I am nothing more than a pretty black boy, and this is my pretty girl. I've been here a great while. After that, Elizabeth collapsed. The devil left her, and those present prayed over her. Like Like you do. Yeah. This is essentially the last record that exists concerning Elizabeth's possession. She later confessed that the devil entered her mouth the night before and was still inside of her for several weeks following the incident. She confessed that the devil came to her in her great discomfort and displeasure when she was working at the Willards. The devil had used her desire for the wonderful riches of the Willards' home, which she could never hope to have at that time as an uneducated girl from a poor family, hmm. as temptation. After a formal inquiry by the magistrates in January in which she confessed her sins, she went to live a life that left little note in the public record save for her marriage to Ephraim Philbrick a few years later. Ephraim Willard most likely saved the life of Elizabeth by working with her, talking to her daily, and refusing to fall into the dogmatic fear of that time that caused the death of dozens and the imprisonment of hundreds in the colony for witchcraft. For hmm. several weeks after Elizabeth's recovery, as word of the strange case spread throughout the colony, Willard sought to drive the town towards a positive resolution of the experience in one of his weekly sermons. Mm-hmm. Quote, God hath in his wisdom singled out this poor town out of all the others in this wilderness. Let us look upon ourselves to be set up as a beacon upon a hill by this providence. The old beacon upon the hill. Yes. And let those that hear what hath been done among us hear also of the good effects and the reformation it hath wrought up among us. Uh-huh. So that is the story of the possession of Elizabeth Knapp, also known as the Witch of Groton. Groton? Isn't Groton and Acton, Massachusetts? Groton and also Dunstable, I think? Dunstable. Is that <laughs> over there? Dunstable? Maybe that's just the name of the high school. I don't know.
1: Well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. I not
0: Sean Callahan, if you're listening, please tell yeah. me. Sean, I, I would give
1: you like a fucking B, brother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so normally we make a special point of clarifying that it is not the show's goal to dismiss or ridicule people for their beliefs. No, indeed. Even though we often end up not believing the more supernatural types of paranormal phenomena we cover... We typically don't intend to insult those who do. No, not at all. Having said all that, I want to make this abundantly clear. <laughs> Demonic possession is not real. It is a mental health issue. Treating it as anything other than a mental health issue is nothing short of cruelty. Yeah, true. I'm very, very adamant about this fact. Right. So Elizabeth Knack lucked out. Even though she wasn't given proper treatment, the fact that she, um, the reverend didn't go too far down the religious rabbit hole with her probably saved her life. Yeah, true. There are a lot of instances where people throughout all i mean a whole long history even up until pretty recently were assumed to be possessed by the devil in some way yeah. and treated through religion Just and not th- throw, through medicine. Thrown in a
1: box pretty much yeah at and, best
0: or sometimes the exorcism kind of um practices could involve a whole lot of like not okay stuff like so for example the physician in this instance said that oh you know this is a problem with her stomach she should fast Just so have her not eat yeah That's Um, that's okay I can think of at least One possession story I can't remember When it was It may even have been In the 20th century I'm not positive Mm -hmm. It may have been The late 19th Of someone who I mean a lot of times Depending on Who is Performing the exorcism And stuff They can use that As an excuse to get way too close physically to the person uh, who was possessed a lot, of, like, a lot of unnecessary savory, bodily gross. contact yeah, and it's yeah. just really not okay Yikes. saying it's all necessary for yeah oh, oh, so is, taking ooh. way too much advantage of someone who's clearly not well right in the case of this one particular person they uh, said yeah she needs to fast she needs to do all this stuff and this woman ends up being pretty much starved to death i can't remember if she died of that or not but someone who clearly needed help and was not given help she was instead treated just terribly because they're like no we gotta get the devil out of her as opposed to actually treating them correctly. Right. So if not the devil, what was ailing Elizabeth? Uh, The same account I read from also offers this at the end. So here's some more quotes there. It now appears that Elizabeth most likely was afflicted with adult-onset chorea, also known as Huntington's disease. I've heard of that. Yes. Um, A rare dominant genetic disorder. Eight people in every 100,000 in Europe and North America, suffer from it. The disease causes the selective deterioration of certain movement-related structures deep inside the brain. Hmm. Symptoms of the disease, which may first appear around puberty, include excessive, spontaneous, irregular movements of the limbs that flow from one part of the body to the other that worsen over time, sometimes leading to neurological deterioration, including apathy, irritability, memory loss manic depression and schizophrenia
1: would you expect to see all this in like early onset though like in a person who is still in the early stages
0: i mean we kind of start out in small bits and worse it would over progress time. yes quickly probably and it yeah. can start as early as puberty it can start later in adulthood sure but it's the kind of thing that doesn't start out early in life it's like later on it appears right and in a time when you know, think of the age of a lot of the different um, possession stories it's all around that kind of time in their life
1: yeah certainly which is already a taciturn i mean you know even a very very a person of fine mental and physical health will have days where they're just like (laughs) we'll put it this way you know the angst of the teenager if you have no cultural social context or words by which to articulate your experience other than if i was feeling negative or having these thoughts it must have been the devil how else are you going to be able to articulate yourself for sure yeah instead of just being like oh i was just in a bad mood like whatever yeah because the devil temporarily possessed me
0: (laughs) for sure yeah as a teenager hormonal changes and stuff things can be rough like i know for myself i mean there are times when i found myself feeling just so moody and so i mean depression is a rough thing and you don't really know how to understand what's happening to you and what you're feeling right and if all you've known your whole life is just all this strongly religious upbringing then maybe you think okay the feelings I'm having are bad and they must be coming from, from dark force. Yeah. And if you're or if you're acting out because of your bad feelings right. everyone else will conclude that for you. Right. Exactly. So it's pretty terrible. Let's go back to some more quotes from this thing. Yeah please. Uh, sleep is usually the only time when a cork is not vulnerable to fits. So this is kind of go back to Elizabeth. You know she was Freaking out until she fell asleep And then she was fine Right true. Uh, This is current There's currently no cure But antipsychotic medications Such as uh, Phenothiazines May lessen the symptoms Corks have been dubbed Everything from saints The Catholic Church Recognizes four People hmm. who probably had Huntington's disease As saints uh, To witches Since the 16th century Interesting So depending on Who's observing them And what they happen to be doing They can be assigned All kinds of different right.
1: labels Either a rapturous um, Or a satanic experience Yeah uh, none of which are really
0: actually accurate to their huh. condition and don't right. help them in any way. Right. Equally um, robbing in both cases in some sense. Yeah, so in this one account alone we get some hints at several different mental illnesses that can have symptoms similar to what people call demonic possession. Like the fact that Huntington's disease can eventually lead to schizophrenia and stuff. And mm. schizophrenia itself is used in um, you know, movies and stuff that describe so much stuff. It can take so many different forms. True. And it can come and go. It can be visual hallucinations auditory hallucinations it can affect behavior or it could be something people just kind of live with and keep inside and try to ignore right, um, right. it can get worse over time it can stay the same it can go away it's i mean mental health is a very complex absolutely true complex thing to be aware of and so when something happens that changes someone's behavior dramatically i mean it's fun to think about supernatural and paranormal explanations for stuff in some cases but when someone's
1: well-being is at stake i just can't get behind that yeah i'm with you there it's always creeped me out too. how much or i wonder i just wondered the degree to which people of that period were you know being the worst part of people and just taking it like you described in that earlier case of some people like getting too close or taking advantage of these people in a physical way but also these guys just like power tripping and going like, "Oh yeah, she's a witch too." <laughs> yeah. Let, "Let's burn her too." Yeah. Cool. Yeah, people do whatever they want to. And You know. And
0: also, even if they did know that it was a mental health thing, it was a long, long time before we came to the point of actually treating mental health patients in a not horrible way. Right, for, true. For the longest time to we this just locked yeah. They're abused and and mistreated. Absolutely. Like for the longest time we just locked them away just not to have to see them anymore. Right and just basically in a For, whole... Throw
1: them in a sanitarium or an asylum or something. Yeah.
0: And so it's only very recently that we've been starting to actually, you know, see mental health patients as, you know, oh, wait, they're people. We should right. probably take care of people. <laughs> right. It's awful. It um, is. And there's a lot And like, there's a lot of things I thought of as I was researching this thing, too, about Huntington's disease and stuff like that, how easy it is to fall into a place of using words like crazy and insane to describe things just to kind of give it a put it in a hyperbolic oh okay hyperbolic oh you know if if something is surprising or strange or something it's easy to describe it as oh that's crazy right but the more you think it's just we're still in a place in society where we don't think a lot about mental health and what different people go through on a daily basis and stuff and that can be pretty dismissive of people's experiences and stuff true i know like for my part i've been lucky i've only ever had to deal with uh, ocd and depression those are pretty mild in terms of things that people can have to deal with they're yeah. not fun i mean a- anxiety i guess fits in there too sure not fun but uh not you know a deal breaker as far as living my life <laughs> like it works out okay mm-hmm. uh it's manageable mm-hmm. not everyone is so lucky and there's no, a lot indeed. of just shit out there so yeah so, there, if you so want so <laughs> so
1: stay freaking aware guys god yeah.
0: damn and uh, you know, don't assume people are possessed or are witches. That's also yeah, exactly. Good. If we teach you nothing uh, else, it's to uh, not burn people as witches.
1: Yeah, and also, please just um, do not tell anyone that you heard that I threw that baby in the oven because <laughs> that shit definitely went down. <laughs> totally sound mind when I did it. I knew exactly what I was doing. <laughs> I was hungry, so. <laughs> Um, but so, yeah. on that darker note, that's <laughs> our. Well, so
0: I guess the, the kind of moral behind this whole episode is that uh, some of the more famous, more fun horror type tropes we follow, in this case, vampires and demonic possession, things True. that appear in all kinds of horror movies all the time and stuff are largely rooted in... You know, we didn't talk at all about Vlad the Impaler and stuff like that, because we weren't no, talking about the, Dracula, we were talking about vampirism in general.
1: Right, right. Because he did drink blood and
0: stuff, like, whatever, that's the thing that people... That was, that's a whole and separate then, story. The
1: quote-unquote vampire of the New England Panic was almost a misnomer, like like the guy described. It's closer yeah. to this other sort of folkloric creature entity... That can be considered a kind of vampire, but it's Yeah and, its own thing.
0: Yeah, and um I mean there are aspects of it too, if I remember correctly from uh, Amanda's email where we yeah, dug please. up the corpses uh, because of their having died of tuberculosis. In some cases right. blood was trickling out of their mouths after right. they were buried. And so they assume they're like, Oh, they're drinking the blood of the living kind of a thing. But it's simply just uh That's something that happens after you're uh in you the di- ground yeah exactly your body does weird stuff after or you die or in the hobbit shed <laughs> the hobbit shed of, which yeah, I if have, you haven't I... been to New England before <laughs> there are uh, I think it's true in a lot of different cold climates if someone dies in the winter and they can't be buried right away there are these kind of like uh, above ground uh, uh, temporary storage places tombs, for bodies yeah right but I enjoyed which, that very much yeah, which Amanda described as a hobbit shed yeah, so shout out to Amanda which is yeah. uh, definitely an appropriate term Very. Uh, funny. if you see one they look a lot like that Exactly. Um, i may or may not have been in one one time did you recently. drink tea and plan a great adventure uh yes oh, nice in portsmouth there's uh that's oh. pretty cool and old and i <laughs> the door was open i couldn't not go in <laughs> but yeah if we have you take nothing else away from this episode it's that a lot of those major horror tropes that we so love to watch on the screen in the Campier of horror movies mm-hmm. are based on actual maladies and things that were just misdiagnosed back in the day, right, and that right. had real effects on people's lives. Like, listen, to how many people died? And and your story, it's like, TV's. Oh bad. my goodness,
1: it's it's crazy. And to just remember how much, um, as we as a culture learn about the world, that uh, as we move into the fringe of our understanding about how the world works. That can sometimes be the most delicate and vulnerable space for one's conception. Of what's actually going on that's the space in which you can easily succumb to less than useful imagination let's put it that way perhaps (laughs) but luckily we live in a time
0: when you know we have all this knowledge at our fingertips and stuff and years and years and years of research right all leading up to where we are now right and technology that a place where yeah if you have something wrong with you or someone you love or know there's likely something someone can do that will help them that doesn't involve an exorcism oh uh, yeah Modern, burning and tricky. They're harsh.
1: Modern medicine is one of the great luxuries of at least the uh, <laughs> Western and first and to some degree second worlds. So, <laughs> yes. thank goodness for that
0: so we'll be back next week with some more spooky tales of some
1: more creepy ghoulies and uh whatever we come across i'm not sure what our topic will be but i'm sure we we'll pretty figure something much out.
0: decide the day before yeah before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we do our research five minutes before we start recording <laughs> yeah.
0: sometimes wow the other person is talking yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh yeah we hope to see you guys there and thank you for um, joining us this time thank you so much talk to you again soon yeah see you then bye bye